Hey, uh, John chapter 11, if you have your Bibles this morning. John chapter 11. If I haven't met you, my name is Graham, and I have the privilege of being one of the pastors here, serving alongside our ministry team, and uh, being a part of what God's doing here at Clearview. And if this is your first Sunday or first Sunday in a while, <clears throat> then uh, you, know, you, you need to know that we are right in the dead middle of a, a series that our, our whole church has decided to lean into in one way or another called Keys to Freedom. We have embraced this across several different ministry areas. Some of our adult groups have chosen to go up the mountain with us. Our student ministry is walking through it. Several different uh, areas that have um, embraced this idea uh, that freedom is at the core of anything else that we could desire. The freedom is the root that we really are after. And so we are, we are so thankful for the way that God has already begun to use this series in various ways and the response we've seen in this room and in the chapel and in all the other areas that we have embraced this idea, these concepts, we believe that God will use this to launch something. This is the beginning of what we just saying. This is a, a move. And so we're thankful for tools like Keys to Freedom and the ability we have to walk through it together. <clears throat> His name was Bob Gross, and Bob Gross was an integral part of the 1970s and early 80s Portland Trailblazers basketball team. I've got a picture of Bob. That's Bob Gross. Everybody say, hey, Bob. He's an integral part of the late 70s, early 80s Portland Trailblazers basketball team. On a particular season, Bob sustained an injury to one of his ankles, severe sprain, slight stress fracture, but the Blazers were not in a position to shut him down. Said, so, you know, we, we really, we're at the home stretch of the season. We can't really afford to, to set him down and lose him for the rest of the season. So here's what we'll do. Uh, we'll, we'll just do what every sports organization does with key players. Uh, we'll just shoot him up with painkillers. He'll at least be able to play. He'll give us what we need. And then we'll get there with the surgery. We'll do whatever we got to do later on. But for now, we'll just do whatever we got to do to numb the pain so he can keep playing. And so that looked like three to five shots a week at the site of his injury. And then before each game, he would get a shot. At halftime of each game, he would get a shot. At the end of each game, he would get a painkiller injection. He's feeling better than a lot of us. That worked for a little while, a few weeks, until uh, eventually at one of these games where he had, he had gone through his routine and gotten all the medication he was supposed to get, he plays this game against the Boston Celtics, and he goes up for a rebound. And when he comes down, getting that rebound, you guessed it, that ankle gives way. It snaps right there on the court. However, because Bob Gross had been so medicated, and he was on so many painkillers, he had no idea. And so as he, as he comes down on the ankle a little awkwardly, he turns to begin to run back down the court, every step taking more damage, until eventually he crumbles onto the floor, not in pain, but just unable to go any further. Not only was that the end of Bob Gross's season, but ultimately that was the end of Bob Gross's career as he knew it. The team and Bob had done all they knew how to do to numb the pain without getting to the injury. And ultimately, Bob Gross's inability to feel pain cost him his career. His inability to process what was going on cost him the one thing he wanted to do. This idea of pain. 
This idea of dealing with hurtful things messes us up. It's counterintuitive, right? Many of us in our society will do all that we need to do, all we can to insulate ourselves from difficult things. To, to, to take away all of the risk, mitigate all of the risks associated with pain and heartache and difficulty. We'll do all we can to keep it at bay. So secretly, we live in one of the most medicated societies in history. Substance abuse at an all-time high. People, millions and millions, every single day, just trying to live, man. Just trying to get by. Do whatever I got to do to numb the pain. To not have to deal with it. For Bob Gross, he was so medicated and so distracted that ultimately he lost his ability to understand what was happening to his body, therefore damaging way more than he thought ever possible. And friends, if I can be honest, I think my fear for many of us, our culture, our society, our churches, is that our desire to numb the pain without fixing the injury will cause us to lose our ability to understand what's happening inside of us and will ultimately cause more damage than we ever thought possible. And so we, we come around this idea, the key this, this week that we've been studying in our groups and even this morning is called Healing Life's Hurts. Positive, encouraging, K-love, right? Like that's, we, 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 we right off the bat are just getting elbow deep in it, man. Healing Life's Hurts. And when I thought this week about how do I tackle this, how do I come around it, obviously the workbook that we go through has several days worth of material. How do I come and get my hands around this concept? Who do I look to? I thought, who better to look to than the master? Let's look at how Jesus handled grief, handled difficulty, handled difficult and hard things. What did he do in moments of pain? John chapter 11 you're there with me. Uh, we're going to read a lot of it because we need a lot of the story to be able to pull what we need from it. John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him and said, Lord, the one you love is sick. Lord, your friend, Jesus, your brother is sick. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed, don't miss it, two more days in the place where he was. And then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now, just, just a minute ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and your plan is to go back there again. And Jesus says these words, aren't there 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world, but if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble. Because the light is not in him. Jesus effectively saying, hey, I'm on a mission from God. They can try whatever they're going to try, but I've got as much time as I need. They do whatever they want to do, but I am on a mission. I will have the time that I 
need. Because I'm the light of the world, we better get to work. It's essentially what Jesus is saying here. Verse 11 said, he said this, and then he told him, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. And the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will get well. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death, but they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So he told them plainly. Don't you love when Jesus tells you something plainly? Lazarus has died. And then he says these words. He says, and I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Let's go to him. An interesting statement Jesus makes. He says, I'm glad that the situation has become more difficult. I'm glad that conditions have deteriorated. I am thankful it is better that things seem more impossible because once you see what I do with it, your faith is going to increase. You're going to grow. It has to get dark. But once you see the light, man, once you see the light, so Jesus says, your faith, you will, you will believe. Your faith will grow. That is, difficult circumstances, impossible things will change you. And they change because Jesus steps into the situation. Verse 16, I love it. Then Thomas said to his disciples, let's go too so we may die with him. I love the faith of Thomas. He says, if Jesus is going, I'm in. Verse 17, when Jesus arrived... He found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, and Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. I love how specific John gets here. He just keeps hinting at this idea that Jesus took his sweet time. Verse 19, many of the Jews had come to Martha and to Mary to comfort them about their brother. And as soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. And then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here... My brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Your brother will rise again, Jesus prophesied and told her. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then he asks her the question, do you believe this? And she says in verse 27, yes, Lord. She told him, I believe you're the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here. He's calling for you. Martha could already sense this is a teaching moment. There's a lot of words for Jesus, but in this moment she said, hey, grab your pen and paper. The teacher's here. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. And Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. In verse 32, as soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. And said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, obviously, Mary and Martha had had a pre-meeting. Discussed the talking points. Said, what's our, what's our story here? Oh, yeah, where were you? They lined up, right? They have the same burden, the same hurt. They're in agreement with what they 
wanted. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him, he asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. And the famous words, Jesus wept. It's the first verse that I ever memorized. I'm so proud as a 24-year-old. I'm just kidding. Jesus wept. Common verse, one we know well. It's the first verse I ever memorized. It's also one that messes me up. How in the world could the God of the universe be moved to tears over a situation that he could have prevented? How is it that the, if God is as mighty and as, all, as, as powerful and as sovereign as he says he is, then why is he so messed up over something that he could have controlled? And beyond that, you also have to remember that Jesus knows the end of the story here. Lazarus was always coming out of the grave. Jesus knew the outcome. He knew what he was about to do. So what's the deal here? Why the grief? Why the emotion? Why does he get so stirred up in his spirit? If he is, he could have prevented it and he didn't. He took his time. Lazarus died. If it was going to mess him up, it was going to hurt him, then why is he... Why don't, he, why don't he do anything? Why the grief? You see, the grief in this moment couldn't have been about Lazarus. Because Jesus knew Lazarus was dead before he ever took a step into Bethany. The Bible doesn't say when Jesus saw Lazarus in the tomb, he wept. It's clear that they hadn't even made it to the tomb yet. It can't be about Lazarus in the tomb. The Bible doesn't say that. What does it say? When does Jesus get emotional? When does he weep? When does he get stirred in his spirit? When he sees the pain in his people. When his brothers and his sisters hurt. That's what messes him up. And it's in that moment that you and I find all the evidence we need to understand a little bit more about God, that he is a God who will sit with us in our pain. He's not worried about the outcome. He has a plan. He knows how it's going to go down, but he cares enough to sit with us and cry a while. He's not so busy carrying out the plan that he misses the people. He's not just so on a mission that he shows up and waves a magic wand and does what he needs to do, and then moves on about his day. No, he doesn't condemn them for their emotions. And he doesn't tell them to toughen up. What does he do? He weeps with them. He weeps with them. Hebrews 4 describes Jesus as a great high priest who is, don't miss it, able to sympathize with our weaknesses. He gets it. He understands. In fact, the whole central theme of the book of John found in the very first chapter is that the word became flesh and dwelled where? Among us. 
Jesus in human form. God in human form. Experiencing the difficulty, the pain, and the heartache right there in the mud with us. You see, God is a God who will sit with people who have been beaten up by life and just hurt with them. Jesus knows that this world is broken. And his solution is not to keep fixing this one, but to give us somewhere else to go, to take us to a new one. And in a broken world, sometimes things break. Life happens. Heartache comes. Sometimes things end up shattered on the ground. But where is Jesus? He's helping you pick the pieces up. He doesn't look down on you for your pain. He knows how broken this world is. It's the whole reason he showed up. But he's willing to just sit and feel with you. That's not all he does. We'll keep reading in verse 36. It says, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some, very cynically, said, uh, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? This can be read two different ways. Way one is that why didn't he heal Lazarus? Way two is they're beginning to believe he didn't heal the blind man. I said, well, if he couldn't do this, there's no way that he's done all this other stuff we've heard about, right? In verse 38, then Jesus, it says, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Again, evidence that it wasn't about Lazarus. He wasn't even at the tomb. And he came to the tomb, and it was a cave and a stone lying against it. Sound familiar? He says, remove the stone. And Martha, I love this. Remember, Martha's the housekeeper. She says, hold on, that's going to stink. Take your shoes outside, my mama would say. She says, hold on. She said, Lord, there's already a stench because she has, he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you'd see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. I know you always hear me, but because, he just blatant about it. He says, because of the crowd standing here, I said this so they may believe it's you who sent me. I know it's between me and you here, but let me just show the rest of these folks who's actually in the room with them. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice and said, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out bound, hand and foot, with linen strips and with his face wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. I'll be honest, for most of my life, I read this story and I, I just believed that the central character in all of it was Lazarus. Probably in your Bibles, if it has subheadings, it says something about Lazarus. Lazarus was raised, or the healing of Lazarus, or whatever it might be. I believe that everything Mary and Martha said, everything Jesus said and did, was to help Lazarus. That he is the, the main character here. Even the kids' songs in vacation Bible school, when they talk about Jesus raising Lazarus, it's all about Lazarus, right? My wife and I, this week, I was telling her what I was preaching on this weekend, and she was like, there was this song when I was a kid uh, from a guy named Carmen about Lazarus, uh, real weird. Like, I listened to it, and I was like, bro, this, yeah, this is a problem. Um, I see why this dude doesn't do music anymore. So, um, <clears throat> is he dead? I hope he's not dead. Um, but the, Lazarus is always the character. 
He's always the focus, right? He's always at the, at the center. It's all about Lazarus. But if you think about it, the guy literally didn't do anything. He was dead pretty much the whole time. In fact, the, whole, the only thing he contributed to this story is dying. <laughs> like, that's all he did here. And yet we make the story about Lazarus. Jesus offers a different narrative in verse 40. Let's go back. He says, didn't I tell you, saying to Martha, that if you believed, you would see what? The glory of God. Not if you believed, you would get what you wanted. Not if you believed that you'd feel better about everything. Jesus didn't say, if you believe, you'll be happy again. He didn't even say, if you believe, then the pain will go away. Now, there was a different agenda, a different purpose, a different reason for the miracle. He said, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. Made no mention about what they were after. Because what they were after was the healing and restoration of their brother, and then eventually the resurrection of their brother. They had no idea what Jesus was doing in this moment. But that's what they were after. Life had let them down. They'd gotten beat up. Right? They had this issue, this, this circumstance, this pain that had been, had been caused in their life that life had just brought. And it had stirred them up and caused so much anguish and grief, and they cry out to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, will you do this? I believe that you can. I'm asking that you will. It had become the focus. If I can just get Lazarus healed, if I can just get him, him well again, then all will be well. And then he didn't. The healing didn't come. It didn't happen. The thing that they thought was going to bring solution didn't happen the way they thought. What they had been depending on didn't come through. And when it didn't happen, hopes were dashed. Devastation set in. It created disappointment, discouragement, frustration. There's no shortage of stories like this throughout the biblical narrative where pain comes in an unexplainable and really seemingly uh, random way. I think back to Genesis, I think about a guy named Joseph. Joseph was about as arrogant as they came, telling his brothers from an early age, yo, I'm going to be your king one day. You guys are going to bow to me. I got a lot of Josephs in student ministry. Just kidding. He said, you're going to bow to me, and what does their brothers do? They sell him. Gets sold into slavery, has to work as an exile, work as a slave, and then eventually he gets a little bit of power, and then Potiphar's wife lies on him. He has trial after trial, and yet in Genesis 45, when Joseph reconvenes with his brothers, what does he do? Hugs them, embraces them, says, I know what you meant for evil, but God has used it. God has used me in a powerful way. I think about Job. 
I know we talk about Job a lot, but I still can't get over the idea that God and, and Satan were having a conversation, and he said, what you up to? And he said, I'm just looking to, going to and fro, looking whom I can devour. And, and God said, have I got a deal for you? You consider my servant Job. God teed him up. He said, you can do everything you want to do as long as you don't kill him. You can't kill him, but you can do it and take away everything else. And then we read the narrative of Job, and everything goes away one by one, from livestock to wealth to family. His own wife says, curse God and die, a virtuous woman who can find. It gets grim for Job. Literally, everything had been taken away. And yet we read that he says, even in light of all the stuff that's happened to me, I know my Redeemer lives. Think about Paul. He details in a letter to the Corinthians all of the different things that he had been through from being shipwrecked to beaten to imprisoned to, to mistreated in all kinds of different ways for the sake of the gospel. It's difficult for me to believe that God's priority in our life is comfort and convenience when you remember that half the New Testament was written from a prison cell. But Paul allowed himself to be poured out. No shortage of painful situations. All I'm saying to you this morning is sometimes pain is God's platform. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Sometimes God's plan for our lives is to use them to get the world's attention. It's not always that we've done something wrong or that he's, he's, he's disciplining us. Remember when he calmed the sea in the boat, they went out because he, they went with him. They weren't in a storm because they had done something wrong. They went out because Jesus invited them. Couldn't have been because of them. It's not always about us. I'm not here to tell you today, well, if you've got pain in your life, it's because God's trying to wake you up. That's not necessarily true. Sometimes he's using you to get the world's attention. And that doesn't help us in a moment of difficulty to understand hard things, but sometimes surrender means giving up the right to understand. Sometimes surrender means forfeiting an explanation. So when everything comes unraveled in our text, they say, what do they say? They got their story straight. If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. I wonder if you've been there. If you would have been here. If you would have been here, I, I, I think for me, I know that feeling all too well. I, I'll admit, I, there are times in my life, there's dark moments of heartache. Family situations, financial situations. It made me have to ask the question, even just for a moment, God, where were you? Where were you? How is this the plan? Like, how, how, can, how can you be good and this still happen? And it's in that moment I have to remember that God's definition of good and mine might be very different. He is eternal, and I'm 28. 
we're going to have different perspectives on good. But I'd be lying to you if I didn't tell you there are moments sometimes where I just have to think, if you would have been here, this wouldn't have happened. If you wouldn't have been here, I wouldn't have lost my job. God, if you would have been here, then my relationship wouldn't have gotten broken. If you would have been here, my finances would have been stable. If you would have been here, my dad wouldn't have left. If you you would have been here, my life wouldn't be a mess. Can I give you just a, a free word this morning? God can handle those things. God's not scared of of your if you would have. If you'd have been here, that's what they say, right? If you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But the fundamental problem in that statement in this story is that this wasn't about them. This wasn't about them. It wasn't about what they wanted. It wasn't about what their desires were. It wasn't even about Lazarus. You see, Jesus wasn't just there to relieve their pain. He was there to use it. He wasn't just there to to, to make the pain go away, to just, just offer a solution. No, he's there to use it. How do I know that? Because Lazarus coming out of the grave wasn't the end of the story. Read the next verse, verse 45. It says, therefore, because of this, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he did believed in him. See, at the end of the day, Lazarus was an instrument in the hand of God. He was a tool that God used to make people believe, to increase their faith, to change their life. But don't miss it. I'm going to land the plane. Don't miss it. None of that happens. Lives are not changed. People are not changed. Um, and, and the perspective of Jesus is not shifted. Faith was not increased without Lazarus dying. He had to die a real death. He had to get real sick. Mary and Martha had to feel real pain and endure real suffering. Many of the friends who had gathered around them had to, had to deal with real loss. Life had to hit them in the mouth. Hopelessness had to set in. Sorrow had to set in. Desperation had to set in. And pain had to set in. They had to get to the point where the medication stopped working. They couldn't numb it anymore. Backup plans had failed. Resources were exhausted. They had to get to the lowest point they could have ever imagined. Why? Because God has a way of showing you something in the valley that you never could have seen from the mountain. There's a perspective God will give you in the low point, in the valley. You never would have seen if you lived up there. Never would have seen if life was always good. There's things he can teach you about himself and about who you are. There's things he can teach you about the world. There's mercy and grace that he can show you. That same Hebrews 4 passage goes on to say that we can approach the throne of God with boldness. 
and find help in our time of need. God has a way of showing you something in the valley you never would have seen from the mountain. And oftentimes, miracles can only happen in moments that require them. Jesus doesn't get to do the miraculous without the pain. There is no miracle without the mess, without the hurt. And so I'll be honest this morning, coming around this idea of healing life's hurts. And you, you think, you look at Lazarus, you look at Mary, Martha, whatever, whatever you, your minds are going towards, whatever my mind goes, goes toward in this passage, trying to stay away from that Carmen song if I can. But you look up and you go, okay, so what? My, my brother didn't die and I don't see Jesus walk into my, my neighborhood. So how, what, what does that mean? How, how do I, what do I do with that? In a room this size, in the chapel and online, anywhere else, man, I, I, there's no way that I could know the pain you're dealing with. I don't know what walked into the room with you this morning. I have no idea what might be burdening you from a fractured relationship to a loss of a loved one or of a, a season of life to divorce, maybe the weight of approval from a, a parent or a, a boss, a co-worker, a child. Maybe it's abandonment. It's loneliness. It's a wayward son or daughter. It's a financial situation. It's an illness. It's maybe something much darker than that. I don't want to make light of any of it. I'm not trying to generalize it or minimalize it or anything like that. But here's what I do know. No matter how dark it is, the same God who sat with Mary and Martha in their darkest moment is the same God who wants to sit with you in yours. It's the same Jesus. And he has the same heart. He has a plan to fix it. He's not biting his nails over it. But he wants to come sit with you wants to come be with you in yours. Now, I realize I'm the young guy in the room. And so some of you may be thinking, it's easy for young buck to say, call me in 20 years when life's hit you a little bit further. And again, man, I, I, I know that there are things in this room that I can't begin to understand, and I'm not trying to. There are weights that you have been carrying that have... I know nothing about. I, I can't begin to comprehend the weight of your circumstance, your situation. There are things you have experienced and seen that I don't know, and I can't relate. But if you'd be willing to go to lunch, I can share with you some of mine. I've seen enough life to know that no matter what you're carrying, the Bible tells me that it doesn't belong with you. I don't know what's strapped to your back, but I know it doesn't belong there. 1 Peter 5 tells us to throw our cares upon the Lord. Elizabeth Elliot said, Faith doesn't eliminate questions, but it gives you somewhere to take them. It doesn't eliminate doubt. It doesn't take away frustration. It doesn't make life easier. But it gives you a holy option. It gives you an alternative approach. And somewhere else, you can offload that stuff. So this morning, I don't have a list of self-help tips. 
I don't have like just do one, two, or three, and you'll get to move on from difficult things and everything will be peachy in your life. I, don't, I didn't bring that list with you. Check out Dr. Phil every day at 3 o'clock. That's not why I'm here. I don't have a take two of these and call me in the morning prescription I can hand you. And I don't even have an explanation for your individual struggle, whatever that is, that thorn in your side, that, that, that burden that you're carrying, quietly or publicly. I don't know. I, I can't explain all of that. I, I'm not going to sit here and say, just do one, two, three, and call me in the morning. That's not what we're doing here. All I have this morning is a question. Is it possible that the hurt and the pain that we experience in our lives could actually be an instrument in the hand of God? What if, in addition to asking God to relieve the pain, we began to ask God to use the pain? What if our lives could be leveraged? And that thing that has caused you so much pain 25 years ago or last week is the very thing that God can use to change somebody else, to change the world, to increase others' faith, to help people see and experience and believe and Jesus, what story might God be able to write if we would be willing to go there? To let it out. If we stop numbing the pain, hiding it, I'll deal with it later. To go back to Bob Gross, to stop taking the injections and go fix the injury. Stop ignoring it. Stop playing around. Stop pretending that it isn't there and deal with it, to acknowledge it, process it, whatever that means, to grieve it, and then to move forward in freedom. I love that Jesus was willing to sit and cry, but didn't leave them there. He said, get up, we're going to the tomb. Hey, Lazarus, come hang. He didn't leave him in their pain, but he also didn't dismiss it. And I can promise you that Mary and Martha wouldn't trade a second of it. Because they got to see God do what only God could do. The beautiful promise this morning, friends, is you don't have to do any of it alone. In fact, you were never intended to. So in a moment, the band is going to come and play. Some of our ministry team is going to be available down front and here and in the chapel. and um, Man, I, I'm not asking you this morning to come down here and unpack 30 years of, of pain and difficulty. Uh, it, it would be a little bit short-sighted to believe that you can undo 20 or 30 years worth of pain and frustration and heartache in 20 to 30 seconds. For some people, it's going to be a process. It's a journey. It's a road that you walk down. And I'm not asking you to take every step this morning, but I am asking you to take the first one. Whatever that looks like for you. Maybe for you, that is just being willing to come down to the, the altar and to pray with somebody. 
to agree with brothers and sisters and let brothers and sisters do what brothers and sisters do. You don't even have to air it out. You just say, hey, would you pray for me? Would you ask God to give me strength? We'll do it. Maybe for you, you be honest and say, hey, I know that God knows about this stuff, but I've never actually handed it to him. I know he's aware of it, but I've never had a moment where I said, Jesus, you're going to have to take this. And maybe your step this morning is just coming to that point. Saying, God, I don't know what to do. But I know it doesn't belong in my hands. Maybe that's your step. You get down on the altar. And you say, Jesus, I'm going to give this to you. I know you've known about it, but I've tried everything I know how to try to find relief. And it ain't working. I'm out of options. I'm handing it over. Maybe for you, your first step is that, hey, there's a pain that I feel like I've processed. But I'm not ready for God to use it yet. I'm, I'm over it. I'm good. I'm healthy. I'm, I'm, I'm done. But I'm not ready to, to open it up to somebody else. But maybe your prayer becomes, God, would you give me the courage to let you use it? Would you let me step up and say, I... Man, I don't know what, what happened. I, I, I didn't do anything about it. I just, I just gave it to the Lord and he, he, he healed it. And let him use it. Maybe that's your step. Whatever that looks like for you, whatever that might, wherever you might find yourself, the best news that I can give you this morning is there's nothing too messy, nothing too dark, nothing too broken. That God can't redeem it. That happens to be his industry. But he won't redeem what you don't release. And so it's in this moment. Man, I'm, I'm begging you. I'm encouraging you. I'm, I'm pleading with you. Don't walk out of here carrying the same junk you walked in here with. There is somewhere to put it. So our ministry team will be available. The band's going to lead us in the chapel as well. We're going to have a time of response over there. You're online, you want to talk to somebody, call us. Ask for Graham. We'll walk together. Whatever this moment looks like for you, man, I'm encouraging you to use it. You come do business with Jesus this morning. He's waiting on you. You know, you often don't think about sharing something with somebody like a tweet or an email or sending them a sermon or sending them a podcast. You don't often think of that as missions, but it is. It's not that you have to send it to the whole world or post every single thing we do at Clearview on your feed. But if, if you've heard a sermon or if you've listened to a podcast, think through your life. I mean, God, who needs to hear this? Sometimes it, it, it doesn't need to go on your Facebook page. Sometimes it needs to go on your Twitter. But sometimes just a simple text to one person can make all the difference in the world to sending them the Word of God in real time. Share it. You'd be surprised how far it goes.